together remain standing as we read from our text this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Today we're continuing on amazing, passionate narrative of the Gospel, approaching step-by-step to the cross. And so hear the word of the Lord this morning as we go through Matthew 27, 1 through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. So the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed. This is God's holy word. May He write its truth on our hearts. Let's pray once again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the amazing grace and love that we have in you. And as we study this text this morning where Jesus doesn't say a word and yet it's all about him, Lord, I pray that you would grab our hearts and conform us to look like him more and more. Change us, oh God. I pray you lead us into repentance in deeper ways that we've ever known. Lord, use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and see what we can. open to that text. We have already gone through the, the trial, if you will, the first trial, the sham trial. That was before the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it was a fake trial at night. And they've come through that now, and, and then we pause, Matthew paused, if you will, to, to, to turn his attention to Peter, and to show us what Peter was going through in denying Christ. And, and it's interesting, because what we, the text we come to now is, isn't necessarily chronological. Um, sometimes we think the Gospels are all just taken exactly in chronological order. Matthew writes things not always in chronological order. And, uh, and we say this because in, in the text we're going to see the religious leaders take Jesus away to Pilate ultimately. But there, this um, situation with Judas and the religious leaders is going to take place where he, he's close enough to throw the money into the temple. It's at the temple. So Matthew is purposely doing something here. He's putting before us a contrast. He's wanting us to see something put up against something else and learn something from it. Certainly the, the highlight of the contrast is going to be Peter, like we learned about last week, and what he goes through in his denial of his betrayal, if you will, of Christ, and then Judas and his betrayal of Christ. Two very different 
uh, endings to those stories. Last week we, we were encouraged at the ending that Peter receives where he receives mercy, grace, and forgiveness because he truly repents. Today we're going to see Judas and we'll talk about what he does here in the text. Also, I want you to take note as we go through this, the shepherds of Israel, or at least those who are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders. And as we come into the next few weeks, it's going to be a theme in front of us constantly. What's happening here? Whether it's Judas, the religious leaders, whether it's Pontius Pilate, all of them are going to be doing, going through lots of effort just trying to escape the responsibility for the blood of Jesus. It reminds me of uh, Lady Macbeth. Everybody remember Shakespeare from high school? You read Macbeth and, and, and she's involved in the murder, right? And, and, and she looks at her hand and she sees a blood spot. It's not really there, but she sees it and she's rubbing it. Rubbing. She can't get it out. Out, get the spot out, you can't get out. It was a guilty conscience. Here we see, we're going to see something similar where they, they know what they've done, and yet all of them are trying in various ways to just escape responsibility for the blood of Jesus. But here's the truth that's going to hit home. No one can escape the blood of Jesus. Not Pilate, not Judas, not the religious leaders, not me, not you. It will either cover you in salvation or it will crush you in condemnation. How we respond to the precious blood of Jesus today. Three points this morning as we go through the text. The first point is this, rebels, not righteous. Rebels, not righteous. Verse 1, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Again, the nighttime trial is over, and now we see the chief priests and the elders taking counsel together. And that's an interesting words there that if you know your Psalms well, should immediately throw you back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 1 begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what's happening here, literally in this situation. The, the chief priests and the elders are coming together and taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed to put him to death. It goes on in verse 2, it says, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The binding here has a connotation of, of understanding that they probably put chains on him. They're making sure he's definitely not getting away. And if you know the words, delivered him, it's the same word that's used for betray all throughout this Two, uh, two chapters, chapter 26 and 27, it actually appears 15 times in these two chapters. Delivered him up, delivered him up, delivered him up. Again, it can mean to betray, to deliver, to hand over. And it's the Greek term behind all of those uses of Jesus was handed over, Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was delivered. And when Judas delivers Jesus 
to, to the authorities in the garden. And when the Jewish authorities deliver Jesus to Pilate, when Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, the Greek reader would understand it and stand out like a like a like a highlighter, just shouting off the page that each of these deliveries or handings, handing overs is also a betrayal. According to the Gospels, Judas hands Jesus over to the priests because he was greedy. He wanted the money. The priests hand him over to Pilate because they hated him and they were envious of him. They wanted the following in the crowds alone, not from him to have them. Pilate delivers him, hands him over to the soldiers out of cowardice. The soldiers ultimately will kill him. And yet in the midst of it all, here's what I, I want you to see this continual theme as we study each week. There's an overarching theme of the sovereignty of God throughout the whole passion narrative. Octavius Winslow said this about it. He said, it was finally not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. See, no one no one in this text is taking Christ's life from him. He is laying it down of his own accord. What he told the disciples in John 10, verse 11, he told them, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A protector, a comforter, a guard, a guide, a lord, a master, a friend, a shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He went on in, in John 10 and said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He's in control here. Yes, he's in chains. He's in complete control of the situation, fulfilling the plan of God. What love, what love for his sheep has this shepherd? And what love should we have for Christ in return, in response? How should we treasure Him? How should we trust Him through everything in every area of life? Those Jews that were leading Jesus in chains to the Gentile governor, they are wicked men. They're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, and they're evil, wicked men. They're rebels. They're the rebels of Psalm 2. Trying to cast off the, the, the reins that God has put on them. It's futile. It's vanity. They're rebels, and yet Jesus remains in control of the entire unfolding drama of redemption. Again, he had already told them, right? Luke chapter 18, verse 31, he tells us to 12, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And of course, they understood none of these things at that time. But they will understand. We see, when we look at the religious leaders, there's a bunch of rebels. They're not righteous. Secondly, receive remorse, not repentance. Remorse, not repentance. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. 
and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying the Lord. What's going on here? We don't really know why Judas has a change of mind according to the English and the ESV. But what I want to show you is that this is not repentance. The verb is metamelomai, which typically means to change one's feelings. It means to feel remorse, to feel regret. Occasionally, it means a, a type of repentance, but the normal term for repentance that we see throughout Scripture is metanoheim. Which is, which is a change of your mind in the sense that it leads to a change of your life, change of your actions, not just feelings. It actually produces fruit. And Judas here is in a situation, and we don't know, we would have to speculate why he keeps seeing Jesus as condemned. I don't know what he was thinking. Spurgeon said perhaps Judas expected that Jesus would miraculously deliver himself from his captors. He'd seen his power, right? He thought, oh, he'll get out of it. I got my money, He's, he'll do something amazing and get out of it. And when he saw he was condemned, remorse seized him and he carried back to his, his, to his fellow criminals the reward of his infamy, says Spurgeon. We don't exactly know why. All we know is that there is a feeling of remorse in Judas's heart. He sees it, he's not happy with it, he's moved emotionally by it, and so he wants to do something about it. He brought, so he, he brings back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. By the way, just a, a side note, because Judas had been with Jesus in public and in private for the past three years. And, and it appears in some sense that from the text that he was he was privy somehow to the trial, to the sham trial that had gone on. And when it comes to the end, and he sees that, oh my, oh my Jesus is actually going to want to kill him? Wait a minute, what's going on here? He had been with the Lord. If he would have found a flaw in the character of Jesus, now would have been the time to speak up, right? Now would have been the time to mention it. But, but even the traitor, even the betrayer in his dying speech is declaring, if you will, that Jesus is innocent. Just another wonderful proof of the glory of Christ. Also, when we look at what Jesus is, or excuse me, what Judas is going through here, we see that the depth of sin. We see how how deep and grotesque it runs. Sin, brothers and sisters, sin kills. Sin steals, sin destroys lives. And we, we look at it all too often as just a little thing. Sometimes we can see sin as if it's just like a little a little pinprick on, on your arm, and it's just not a big deal. Oh, it's just a little boo-boo, a little accident, a little pinprick. But, but that pinprick spreads. That pinprick grows, and it grows into this massive putrid ball of infection with with pus running over it. It's just, it's nasty and it spreads throughout the whole body. It wants to take over. And so we have to come to the place where we understand as believers in Christ, we can't manage sin. 
There's only one option. It has to be killed. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a, he wrote a lot of great books, but in, in, the, in one of his books called The Great Divorce, he gives this, I think, beautiful illustration of this where he, he talks of a man who has a lizard on his shoulder. And this, and God sent this angel to, to talk to the man, and, and the angel is talking to him, and the, the little lizard represents sin, right? And the angel comes to him and he says, can I kill it? And the man said, well, no, no, let, let's, let's, just, let's just manage it. Let, you know, I can put it in a cage. I can, I can, it's not that dangerous. I can take it out every once in a while. Play with it. Put it back away. Take it out. Put it back away. The angels constantly tell him, can I kill it? Can I kill it? Can I kill it? The man says, no. He wants to manage his sin. Brothers and sisters, there is no managing sin. There is no there is no no excusing. There is no blaming. There is no management of the only option for the Christian is to kill the sin. That's the only path. As John Owen wrote, "Be killing sin, or it will be killing you." And you don't have to look far to see the results of, of people that you've seen in your life that when they toy with sin, they play with sin, it leads them on a path of death and destruction. And we see that. Highlighted here in the text here with Judas today. Don't play with your sin. It's also interesting to see here Judas comes and he, and he tells and he confesses his sin right, to, to the religious leaders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. This man is innocent. I was wrong. I have sinned. These are the shepherds of Israel. What will they answer? What will they do with this? What are they supposed to do here? How are they supposed to help a man in such a place? And their response is, what is that to us? You see to it yourself. And the you there is in fact, you deal with it. And as it's their way of saying, it's your responsibility, not ours. They're trying to do like Pilate, wash our hands of it. No, that's on you, man. You took the money, that's yours. You deal with it. And these are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. It'd be like, 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 like a, a, someone in sin, say a spouse has been cheating on their spouse for six months and, and they're, they're overridden with guilt and shame and they come to the pastors and they say, they confess their sin openly and the pastors say, what is that to us? You deal with it. What kind of a shepherd is that? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to point them Point them to grace. Point them to mercy. Point them to the cross. Point them to hope. But no. Their response to Judas is, figure it out. You deal with it yourself. It's not our responsibility. And Judas, looking for some way in which to somehow atone for the sin, not realizing that he atoned it, for all for sin was about to be accomplished by the very one he had just betrayed. Judas, in verse 5, throws down the pieces of silver into the temple and he departs. He went out and hanged himself. Judas was filled with remorse. But the question is, is this repentance? It's not repentance. 
So even though he knew exactly what he did, I, I, I have sinned by betraying this in blood. Judas was more sorry for the result of his sin than for the sin itself. And there's a huge difference in being sorry about sin and being sorry for sin. He throws the money into the temple. One commentator, Ricky France, notes that the, the, the naos, which was properly the inner sanctuary where only the priests were allowed to go. And basically indicating that Judas wanted to implicate the priests in his crime, like, no, it is your responsibility, you go get the money. You are also guilty of this. So if this is not repentance, what, what is it? It's obviously remorse that we see here, but it's, it's basically a, a, a live and in-color illustration of what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 10 of chapter 7, he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Two things he's juxtaposing. Worldly grief, worldly sorrow, godly grief, godly sorrow, very different results. You can feel remorse, you can, you can confess your sin, you can feel bad about it. Judas does this. He, how does he feel about what he's done? He feels horrible. He feels remorse. He has this grief and this sorrow, but as Paul writes in Corinthians, it's a worldly grief. It's not repentance, which would be fueled by a godly grief. He feels bad, but he doesn't change. Again, last week we looked at another man that Pastor David uh, did such a great job of teaching us. Another guy that Matthew just told us about. What was his name? Peter, right? He denies Jesus three times. And then it says he went out and wept bitterly. He was devastated. He was he was he was he felt horrific about what he had done. I, I have no doubt that all day on Friday and Saturday he was in a state of intense depressiveness over his sin, what he had just done. But as soon as he heard that Jesus was alive after the resurrection, what does Peter do? He's one of the first to the tomb, right? He, he runs, the Bible says, to the empty tomb looking for Jesus. He runs to Jesus, not away from Jesus. And that's one of the big differences between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, where worldly sorrow runs away from God. Judas tries to atone for his own sin himself. He knows the punishment is death. Kill myself then. Godly sorrow over sin turns you to Jesus. You run to Jesus. You run to grace. Judas had remorse, but not repentance. He felt bad, but he never changed. That's some of us sometimes. We cry, we feel bad, we, we grieve the consequences of sin, but do you hate sin? Do you hate your sin? Do you hate it so much that you have no other option other than despair? Or to run to God. And to confess it to Him. And to receive the grace and mercy. Worldly sorrow leads to discouragement, to depression, to despair. Ultimately, as 
See, in Judas's life culminated in suicide, tragically, death. Sin really does lead to death. What is true repentance? What does it look like? It's not mere confession. True repentance doesn't just speak the words, I, I did this. True repentance is followed by a change. A change of behavior. It's not worldly sorrow, as we read in 2 Corinthians 7 10, that, that, that produces death. Worldly sorrow feels bad for sin, but doesn't embrace Jesus' death, doesn't embrace Jesus as our, our man of sorrows who carried our sorrows, who, who paid for our sins. So we can move from sorrow to salvation, to forgiveness, to new life, to joy, as Paul wrote the Corinthians, without regret. There is such a grace where God transforms us so much where we don't keep our eyes on our sin, we keep it on Christ in such a way that, that you begin to look at all the past sin that, that you did and all that you used to feel so much shame for and now you're free of it. Yeah, you can remember it, but He set you free. You know what He has done in taking care of your sin and it leads you to rejoice. True repentance is not self-righteousness. Proud, self-righteous repentance would, would, would confess the sins of other people while neglecting our own. The story of the unrighteous man in Luke 18 is telling where you have the man just saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you have the, 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 the Pharisee over here saying, Lord, I'm thank, thankful that I'm not a sinner like that guy. There's a self-righteousness that comes with dealing with our sin where we, we think, well, we're, we're much better than, than others. We compare ourselves to others when there's nothing to compare. We're all in the same boat. We're sinners. And you're either in your sin and in death and heading towards the wrath of God or you're set free from your sin, living in the grace and mercy and freedom that comes in Christ. True repentance is also not legalistic repentance, which is motivated by, by an attempt to somehow manipulate God for blessing. God, I feel sorry I got caught in my sin. I'm, I'm sorry for the consequences. I'm not really sorry for the sin itself, but I'm going to do these things for you in order to pay you back so I don't feel bad. I don't want to wallow in shame and guilt and condemnation. So I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to take some things away and suffer myself for a little bit. So God will be pleased. Folks, that is, that is a slap in the face of Christ on the cross. You say, well, we're talking a lot about repentance and most pretty much all Christians here this morning. Isn't that something we do when we get saved and repent? Repentance is the lifestyle of the Christian. It's a regular thing. There can be no progress in the Christian life without ongoing repentance. Martin Luther 
famous reformer who, 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 when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle there in Germany, and, and on those 95 Theses, the first sentence said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's your whole life. It's, it's, it's daily. And we need to understand that repentance is not it's not something to, to hang your head about. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift of grace. And the things that lead to godly repentance, not world repentance, but God will use, the, he'll use shame, he'll use guilt, the, the conscience, which is in every one of us, whether Christian or not. Every man, woman, and child has a conscience that, that's, that scorns us in, in so many ways, and, and Lord willing, it will either lead us to, to Christ, the only one who can soothe the conscience and heal the conscience, the one who is Lord of the conscience. And the way he does it is by this gift. And sometimes we, we struggle with that because perhaps you've had a sin, or maybe there's a secret sin that you've been hanging on to, and you've, hide, you've hidden it well, and, 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 but then it, it gets exposed and things come out and, and you, you, you hang your head in shame, you avoid the people of God, you stay away from church, you just, you just go further and further and further away from God. Away from God. And that's worldly sorrow. Yeah, you really feel bad about this. Well, I, I know, but that's not true repentance. True repentance would understand that God in exposing our sin in those times, He doesn't always, does He? Thankfully. God forbid, man, I, I know us. Growing up, I used to think of, of the, the judgment seat. I remember I had this picture in my head as a boy. There's going to be this massive movie screen. And all of the billions and billions of people from all of the beginning of creation are going to watch every moment of your life. <laughs> and they would be like, oh, Lord, freak me out. Oh. I don't know how that's going to be. I know we will answer it. But what I know is, in the end, for the believer, the final answer is... And so repentance, even when our sin is exposed for the believer, it's an understanding that that's a, it's a gift. It's a gift of God saying, here's your opportunity. True repentance. And, and here's why we need to understand that true repentance is a gift of God, because too many times people assume that repentance is within our own power. That it's not a gift of grace. Like, oh, I, I know I'm in sin, I know I'm struggling, but next year I'll repent. I'll have time down the road. Do not presume upon God. That's not your call. If He offers grace of repentance to you, seize it. Don't presume that your heart will not harden tomorrow. I'll just do it later. That's a massive assumption that devalues the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. Paul Tripp always encourages my heart in his writings. says this, when you confess your sins to God, you don't just admit that you have sinned. No, you also confess that you have no power to deliver yourself from the sin. True confession always combines an admission of, of wrong with a plea for help. 
The heart then, encouraged by the forgiveness and presence of Jesus, longs to live in a new, better way. And that way is the way of repentance. Secondly, not only is it remorse, not repentance, here we have revelation, not random. What's happening in this text is not chance. It's not random events that has no direction and, and, and no, no destination. It's going somewhere because the Lord of history is bringing it somewhere. In verse 6, it says, But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Which is incredible to me. Because here, they have no problem condemning an innocent man and murdering an innocent man. We're all good with that, right? Let's just wash our hands of that and put it to the side. Oh, but this budget issue, eh, there's a verse on that in Deuteronomy somewhere that's kind of close to this. And if, if, it's, if it's really blood money, we shouldn't put it in the treasury. That would defile the temple treasury. How messed up are these guys? Sometimes. People today are in some places. Uh, Craig Keenan on this text said this. He said, This narrative further reveals the heartlessness of the religious leaders who value laws and ritual purity more highly than their responsibility to human life. They are not unlike some Christians today, more concerned for petty church rules than for the life and death needs of the communities around them. Except that the religious leaders of Jesus they probably could have justified more of their rules in Scripture. Blood money. Scriptures, I mean, this is a whole hour or two in itself to go through the importance of blood in the Scriptures, specifically the Old Testament and leading into the New Testament. Just very briefly, Leviticus 17 tells of the importance of blood as the Lord was putting on the, the law to the Jewish people. In verse 11, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. He's telling them they are not allowed to eat meat with the blood still in the blood has to be drained first. Why? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood always represented. Life. Life is always a gift of God. Life belongs to God, not us. He said, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. What? What do you give? The blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and now I'm giving this blood to you as a gift on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life is in the blood, the blood is a gift to you, and, and as the blood is, is made atonement for your sins, it brings life. It's amazing that the atonement here is the Lord's gracious gift. It's one that he grants to sinful people. Right? We usually think of sacrifice as that which the Israelites gave to God. But, but here the idea is turned on its head where sacrificial atonement is something that God has mercifully and graciously and lovingly granted to them as a gift to atone for sins, allowing the lifeblood of the sacrifice to ransom the lifeblood of the guilty person. 
All of which ultimately points to Jesus. And so this understanding of blood money, they got it. Money for the murder of the Son of God who was the Lamb to be slain. It says in verse 7, here they are taking counsel again, walking down Psalm 2 a little bit, so they took counsel and bought with them a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So, which tells us there was an understanding in the community that that's what had been done, that they had taken this money, they can't put it into the treasury because it's blood money, so what do they do? We're going to go buy this field that belonged to we're going to take that field and we're going to turn it into a cemetery. So in essence, they're giving back to the community. Why? Um, because in those days, they didn't have airplanes, right? And, and people would not. And so, especially in Jerusalem, you would have sometimes the population of the city during the festivals would swell multiple times, 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 right? Massive number of people, people from all over, people from foreign lands, all over the place. And in those seasons, inevitably, people would die. Um, there, there was no embalming practices going on. When you died, you got buried very quickly. And so they needed a place, but they couldn't bury a foreigner, a stranger, as it says here, in a Jewish cemetery. They had to bury it somewhere else. And so they buy a field with the blood money in order to provide a community service for the foreigners, which to me could preach as well on how the blood of Jesus Christ has benefits all over the place. Even here, it's, if you will, providing a place for, for those who need a burial. But ultimately, what Matthew is getting to in a much bigger way is verse 9. It's another fulfillment. What's happening is Scripture is being fulfilled. He said that then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Now you might read that and you think, what in the world is that saying? I, it's kind of hard to get. And we have to remember that Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience. Jewish readers, and they would right away understand what he's doing here, although to 21st century hearers, it seems really, really odd on what's going on here. Um, and especially odd because this text is, is used by those who are haters of God to try to somehow disprove Scripture. Why? Because Matthew says, Jeremiah said this, but the quote primarily is from Zechariah. Ah, see? It's not inspired. It's not perfect. It, Matthew got it wrong. He misquoted. Well, the, what's happening here is, is, you know, they did not uh, format their uh, research papers back in the ancient world according to our AP standards of today. We made that up. <laughs> you know, we have to cite these sources in exactly. They had a way of telling history, which was always, and if you see this throughout the Gospels, where they would look back to the Old Testament and they would quote from the Old Testament, sometimes not even exactly. They would also, and, and in the quote, not only was it like a perfect quote, it, 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 they, they had liberty with the quote because they were using the quote as a commentary at the same time. And as inspired scripture in the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit leading the writers of, of the text 
to, to understand what that passage actually meant and interpret it for us today. We, and we, we struggle with that because, you know, well, that's is he plagiarizing or he's not citing the right source and he's got the wrong footnote. No, he's doing what the Jews did in that day and how they wrote history. And, and, and so he, he, he's, he's going here, and it's, it's amazing how he's tying it all together. It's, it's actually pulled from several different themes from Jeremiah, from Lamentations, and from Zechariah. In, in Jeremiah, let's study this out later, because it would literally take an hour or two to, to go through to really explain well, but, you know, but, but let's understand it, because we see the, not the same thing, but we see things today in a similar way, right? Like, you, you watch, you know, CNN, watch the news or whatever, and they're, they're, we're getting our unbiased, perfectly unbiased commentary on the news event of the day, which we all know is not true, right? It's like, no, you, you just gave a commentary that's leading to a conclusion based around some of the facts. But you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're making the facts lead to the conclusion the way you want them to lead. Matthew's doing that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he's right. He's saying, this is what was going on in Jeremiah Meditations and Zechariah. Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6. Let me just briefly summarize some of these passages. The prophet Jeremiah goes to a potter's house to observe the crafting of a clay vessel. And when the vessel's ruined in the potter's hand, it's then reworked into a new vessel. And the initial vessel represents the people of Israel who face coming judgment for their unfaithfulness. That's, that's one of the, the key things that the Jewish readers right away pulling out by referencing Jeremiah. Jeremiah 19, oh, by the way, also one of the common themes of, of ancient writers here was you, you would quote, even if the part, just one or two words of the quote belonged to Jeremiah and the rest of it to Zechariah, Jeremiah was the more well-known, so he's the one who gets the credit. That's, that's the way it worked. Jeremiah 19, verses 1 through 11, God tells Jeremiah to go purchase this clay vessel from a pot and bring the leaders of Jerusalem to the valley of Hinnom, which, which was a valley that had been defiled by worship idols by, by the people of God years before. So uh, bring the, the leaders of Jerusalem to the valley of Hinnom, smash the vessel to pieces on the rocks, and that was an illustration by the prophet Jeremiah that the destruction coming upon Jerusalem was, was coming upon them for their sinful rebellion. In Jeremiah 32, verses 7 through 15, God tells Jeremiah to purchase a field for a specific amount of money, and then he has the deed for the land placed in this clay pot to be buried for a long time. That was to show the people and to illustrate that God would restore Jerusalem after the coming judgment on the land. So there's these themes, I know I'm going through them quick, but I want you to grasp, every part of them comes into play here from in Lamentations 4, Jeremiah describes the precious sons of Zion, the residents of Jerusalem, as, as weighed against fine gold and as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hands. And that was to remind the readers that the people of Israel are in the hands of God, just like a clay vessel in the hands of a potter. Zechariah 11, which most of the quote comes from, verses 4 through 14, in that passage, um, Zechariah symbolically acts as a shepherd of the people of Israel. And he's paid 30 pieces of silver as his wages. And he takes the money and he throws it into the house of the Lord to the potter. And he breaks his staff as a symbolic indication of judgment. So, so what's happening is here, Matthew, as a, as a writing to, again, a 
Jewish audience who would get these things right away. He strings this whole pearl, a beautiful pearl of related images that seems bizarre to us, but it provokes them to think deeply, to really grasp what's happening, what's going on, that it's not a, a superficial coincidence of what's happening. This was actually a prophetic explanation of what God had been doing all along, even through the word of the prophets of old. So Matthew is trying to get across something here. What? That Judas' betrayal of the Messiah was a type of, 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 of the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus. Their disobedience at the time of Jeremiah, which resulted in judgment, is seen as parallel to not only Judas, but the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and then even all of Israel here, as, as implicated as rebels against Jesus. Obviously, that would also result in judgment, and that judgment that would come in AD 70 as the temple and the city was destroyed. And so Jer Jeremiah and Zechariah foreshadow, if you will, Jesus, who all suffered at the hands of unjust rulers who placed themselves under God's judgment. And the patterns here and the prophecy both show that Israel's rejection of Jesus takes place not by random chance, but well according to God's perfect plan. All of this as we think about where we've come, looking at the religious leaders as rebels and not righteous, particularly looking at Judas and how his remorse, his worldly sorrow led him to death. Not a true repentance. I want to consider just a moment Think about Peter and think about Judas again as we Because how your life ends is far more important than how your life begins. Right? It's not the first day, your, your wedding day, that's the most important day of your marriage. It's the last day of your marriage. It's not the first day that you get saved and baptized. It's, it's the last day of your life that is the most important. And we as people tend to make a big deal of the start of things. And if we looked at Judas, we would have looked at a guy for three years that seemed to have everything together. And if you look at Peter, you look at a bumbling man who's making mistakes left and right. We might have even said, oh, Judas is definitely making it to the finish line. This guy, Peter. And yet, you see, Judas is the one who was unrepentant. You see, Judas, with his unrepentance leading to death and destruction. And we see Peter. Tradition says Peter's final day was the great day. You might think of that. As I remember, he was a martyr for his sin. And he went to the grave, finishing his race to God, keeping the faith. Had he slipped up, or that betrayed his soul. And yet, here he is on the final day of his life, laying his life down. And so I ask you to consider your own life. 
I ask you to consider how not only you started, but where you're going. And how you're persevering to the end. And the big key to your perseverance is going to be true repentance. Because you're going to say, you'll fail again. How will you respond when you fail? Look to Christ. Don't look inside and stay there. Look to the cross. Look to your Savior. Look to the shepherd. The good shepherd. Find forgiveness. Be assured of your heart. Trust his promises. Know he's faithful. We're going to, in just a moment, celebrate the communion together as we do each week. A weekly reminder of the assurance of our pardon that our sins are forgiven because of the blood of Christ. Because of his finished work on the cross and what he did, we can walk out that, that door today knowing we're free men and boys and girls, completely free in him. No guilt, no shame. It's covered, it's done. The blood has taken care of it. And when you arrive on your final day, having persevered with your eyes on Jesus to the end, and he ushers you into his presence, Hear the blessed words, well done. And I know in that day you will not pat yourself on the back. You will glory in him alone. For he alone is worthy.